and everything else that went on, we, we've seen it revealed even more uh, that there's increased levels of loneliness, depression, anxiety. Uh, medication uh, has increased, whether it's prescribed medication or self-sought uh, through drugs, sex, alcohol, video games, pornography, uh, any number of different things that people use to try and cope with discontent or unhappiness that they have in their life. And, and all of this is happening despite the fact that, that we're the most advanced society in, in all of history. We have unparalleled, unimagined access, uh, previous to now, uh, knowledge, art, comfort, entertainment. If you want to look up how to deal with a bunion, you can find it on your phone in 10 seconds, right? Uh, you want tips on anything, you can look that up. You can go to YouTube and, and find all these other things, and yet peace and contentment uh, elude most in this world. And because of that, across all of our campuses, we're going into this new series called Answers in My Identity. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at these different things and, and finding, like, is the answer in my identity? Like, where is my identity? Who am I? What, what constructs who I am as a person? And then how does that affect uh, the way that I live? And most of our internal issues are created when we struggle with our own personal identity. When we don't know or accept who we truly are, uh, and when we're unable to understand uh, the value that we have in who we are. If we're constantly trying to fill a hole within us or to soothe something that feels like it's going wrong, it's going to result uh, in a chaotic life that bounces around based on how we feel. Whereas if it is truly rooted in a solid, enduring identity, it's going to weather those storms and, and be a place that we're actually anchored in as we face difficulties within our life. Many in the world have an inadequate understanding uh, concerning self-worth. Uh, and because of that, it leads to a couple different things. Either a, a hyperinflation of self-worth, and uh, they think that the only thing going into my head, and this is going to sound weird because it's, I think it's totally out of my, is, is the bee's knees. I don't even know why that's in my head. <laughs> but anyway, it's this, this hyperinflated sense of, of self-worth that, that makes them think that they're God's gift to the rest of humanity. And, and they live in a way that's full of pride. They live in a way that's full of arrogance that are expecting others to um, fulfill their every need or at least, at very least, just be grateful that they get to be within their presence. Right? And, and so they result in like this dominant, overbearing, controlling aspect because they have a hyperinflated sense of, of their worth. Uh, on the other side, you have the, the absolute deflated sense of worth where, where you struggle with believing that you're good at all or, or that you have purpose or that you're able to succeed in any way or you have anything to offer to anybody else. Uh, it results in uh, feelings, and, and actually I think that, that both sides of this will feel at times like if somebody truly knew who I am, like, like knew everything about me, they wouldn't like me. They wouldn't want to spend time with me. And all of that is, is messed up in this whole sense of an uh, inappropriate understanding of self-worth which then leads to hopelessness, it leads to despair, or it leads trying to grab control wherever possible in order to feel rooted and secure instead of tr having the rich and meaningful life that we were actually created uh, to live. Now, this struggle is normal 
throughout all of humanity. In fact, Christian psychologist Lawrence Crabb states it like this, uh, that the basic personal need of each person is to regard himself as a worthwhile human being. In other words, this is something that, that's within all human beings, is a, a desire, uh, a yearning to have this sense of self-worth, a, a sense of being valuable, of being worthwhile. And the question is, where do we get that from? And that's what we're going to be going through in this series. Some secular psychologists focus on self-worth uh, as simply as a goal to feel good about ourselves. And so as they take people through counseling, they're like, okay, well, what makes you feel good? What makes you feel bad? Pursue the things that make you feel good and forget the things that make you feel bad. And all of that comes down to like a really subjective, personal sense of, well, what's good and, and what's bad? And we can just go down certain thought line, you know, where what if somebody feels good when they steal things from other people? And they feel bad when... They're not doing anything. Okay, the logic then says if we press it out to all people, we'll do the thing. It, it doesn't make sense. Um, and so there needs to be uh, something that is anchored outside of our preferences, outside of our desires, outside of what we decide is good or bad. And, and yet our lives often default to what I think is better or what I think is right. Uh, there's a biblical parable that I think really illustrates this well. And, and in this, uh, it's about a father and two sons. And, and you have to keep in mind that this father is representing God. So it is the absolute perfect father. It's not like a, a, an abusive father. It's not a father who's absent and, and not around, not there. Um, because we certainly see that happening in the world where imperfect fathers um, do treat their children in a way where the children want nothing to do with the family. But this is not that circumstance. Uh, this is a perfect father here with two sons uh, out of Luke chapter 15. And so the Jesus is telling this parable. He says, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. And so he distributed the assets to him. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. So right here, this son, he's in a circumstance with the perfect father, and yet his ideal, what seems right and good to him, what he feels is going to make him most happy is to leave this situation and, and to go and to take what he feels is coming to him in money and to go and choose to live the way that he wants to live. This is what he thinks is going to be for his best good. And so he's pursuing this wanting to feel good about himself. He's finding his value in what his inheritance would be and what he gets to do with it. So he pursues this selfishly. And then verse 14, it says, After he'd spent everything, severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Again, showing that, that fickleness, if we base our happiness on circumstances, circumstances can change. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hungry. 
I will get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven uh, and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. And, and so again, right now, we see him in, in this sense of this struggle with his identity and his sense of self-worth. He's saying, I made a bad mistake, right? I chose to take my father's inheritance. I chose to leave. I chose to pursue everything that I thought was good. Obviously, that was a mistake. Now we see as his mind is working and he's grasping at his self-identity, he's now saying, I failed. I'm, I'm worthless. Like I took everything that I had of value and I lost everything that I had of value. I, I failed in this. Let me go back to my dad because I, I, I'm starving here and I'm eating pig food. Like, what will be better for me, I will feel better about myself if I can go back to my father and say, I, I, I don't deserve to be your son. I'm not worth being your son. I've lost everything. Can I be your servant? And, and I know that because you're a good master, you will treat me as a good servant. And so now he's establishing that worth in that sense, and he's saying it's going to be better for me, I'll feel better about my life if I'm a servant to my dad, who I know is a good leader, versus eating the food of pigs. So, so based on his assessment in that, he decides to go back, uh, he gets up in verse 20, goes back to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his finger and the sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Throughout all of this, the son is establishing what he thinks his worth is. He thinks his worth is his inheritance. So he grabs it. He goes and lives his life that way. He fails. He thinks his self-worth is a failure. That he's no longer worthy being a son. And so he goes back crawling and saying, Father, I don't belong being your son. Can I be a servant? What's the father's response in this? He's the one that's actually establishing the worth of the son this entire time. The son comes back and he says, I should be a servant because I failed. The father's like, no, you are my son. Let's bring out the best robe. Let's bring out the ring, the, that symbol of authority within the family. Like, let's celebrate here because my son is back. There, there is no sense where the father is sitting there saying, well, let me calculate here. Like, I used to have this much value, this much worth, this much inheritance. I gave it to this son of mine who went and lost it. And so now he's coming back. Let me look at the ledger of, like, how much I've lost, and do I deduct that from that? And, and now I'm, he's worth less, or I'm worth less. It, that's not in there at all. The father simply says, my son is back. Let's celebrate. The, the worth of the son never changed in the father's eyes. 
And again, this is an aspect, a parable that Jesus, God himself, is saying about us. That regardless of the choices that we make in our life, regardless of how much we feel like we might screw up at times, regardless of how we value ourselves, he looks at us and says, you're my children. I paid everything for you. We'll look at some other verses as we go on that that will show this. But this parable, uh, clearly to me, you look at it and you see somebody who is trying to grasp at his identity. And then when he fails, he's like settling for an identity. And all along, God is saying, no, this is who you are. You are mine. The story continues, though, because at least the other son stayed, right? Like there was two sons. In this story. So, so here's the one that thought he could go and be smart and do whatever he wanted. And, but yet there's this faithful son over here that, that stayed, right? Well, verse 25, it says, The older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, they told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then the brother became angry and didn't want to go in. So the father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he's not saying when my brother came, this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Father replies, Son, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. And so we have now a second son. We now have a second identity. We now have another person in this parable that that is looking at his identity, or at least what he feels his identity is, and somebody who's trying to ascertain his own self-worth. We go through it, and, and he sits there, and he says, He's in the field, and he's working. He's coming back. He hears music and dancing. He finds out what's going on. How does he respond? He's angry, right? Why is he angry? Why is he angry? We sit here, and we look at this, and there's a couple of different reasons. Uh, One of them, as he's sitting there, and he's saying, like, when this son of yours came, he spent this money, and he slaughtered the fattened calf for him. So, So is the son angry Because his brother went and and squandered the family's money. I don't think so. Because he's not saying that here. What he's actually saying here is his first response is, you never did this for me. In other words, he's sitting there and he's been working and his whole identity, his whole self-worth, he's established in being the faithful son. In being the one that does what his father expects him to do. In fact, my guess is, as the other one left and went off and spent money, he's out there sitting in the field saying, at least I'm the right son. I'm the good son. He took his inheritance. I'm here with my father. My father loves me. He's disowned, or he's assuming that he's disowned this other one. And so he builds this whole identity and this self-worth about doing the right thing when this other person did the wrong thing. 
And then it comes to the point where the father has clearly forgiven the younger son and is throwing a celebration. Now he's angry. Why? Because it never happened for him. He never got even a goat to go and have a party with his friends. His self-worth is attacked in this moment because most likely what he's thinking is, here's my screw-up of a brother and my dad loves him more because he throws a party for him and he never let me have a party. He never gave this to me. And so he becomes angry in that moment because of his sense of self-worth, because of his sense of identity, because of his sense of what is, is right or wrong. And it's all stuff that he's built himself. Because what does the father say in this whole thing? Son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. And, and yet the son allowed this sense of, of feeling good about himself because he's doing the right thing and it crumbled instantly when somebody else was shown favor and he felt like he wasn't. And it wasn't even the truth in that circumstance. It was just a perception of not feeling favor in that moment. And so because of that, his world was rocked, he was angry in that circumstance, and he was still in the wrong identity because he acted more like a servant the whole time instead of a son. What if as a son he'd actually gone and said, hey, can I have a goat to have a party with my friends? My guess is the father in that moment is like, yeah, absolutely, you're my son, enjoy yourself. But he fell into this identity and this worth of almost my value is tied up in doing the right thing and because of that he fell into an identity of almost being a servant instead of a son where the other son was like well I'm a son that failed I should be a servant the other one's like I'm doing the right thing I'm not failing but he fell backwards into an identity of being a servant because of his identity and not recognizing how the Father actually saw him. It's the same thing for us in our life today. There's so many different things. We, we, can, we can try and pursue our every desire like the prodigal son, trying to fulfill our sense of identity in anything that we can grab onto. And it, if it's shifting sands and it fails, we get thrown for a loop and we can try and grab onto the next thing and try and grab onto the next thing. And just to try and feel good about ourselves, to, to escape from the things that feel bad, to, to follow the advice of secular psychologists that the goal is simply to feel good about ourselves. And our identity will be constantly shifting. And it will be hollow. And then we will feel like failures when that shifts and falls away from us. We can do it pursuing after sin. And notice what happened here. That the pursuit after sin resulted in an attitude or self-worth of failure. Of not being good enough. And the same thing can happen to us today. As we struggle with sin. We can fall into that same sense of failure, not being good enough. But we have to remember what the Father said. Here's my son. Here's my son. Bring the robe. Bring the ring. Let's celebrate. His establishment of your worth is not based on your failures. 
It's not based on your weaknesses. It's based on who, you, who he says that you are, not who you think that you are. When it comes to the other son over here, he thought he was doing everything right. And we can do that as Christians too, right? We can check all of the boxes. We can avoid this sin and we can avoid this sin. And we can go and do this ministry or we can go and we don't watch this television show or we don't drink this or we don't smoke that and we do this and we do this and we do this. And we can turn ourselves into servants instead of sons because we base our worth on obedience. It's really easy to fall into that as a Christian. God loves me because I'm good, because I'm faithful, because I do the right thing. And all that does is slide us into an identity of simply being a servant, where our worth is how good we are at being obedient. And what this parable is saying is that's the wrong attitude too. Because you're not living out of being a son. You're not living out of being a daughter. And if your worth is in obedience, it's really easy to start comparing to other people and saying, well, why do they get something good? Like, I do this for God, and I do this for God, and I do this for God. Why do they not have money problems? Why are they so happy when they're involved with this sin? It's this comparison thing that happens all the time, and then we feel like God doesn't love us the way that he loves other people because he should love us because I've done this, and I've done that, and I've done this. In other words, I'm a servant. I've been faithful. Where's my wages? And it's missing the sonship or the daughtership of God where he simply says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. This is who you are. Not what you've done or not done. Not how obedient you are or how unobedient you are but rather who I say you are. The series is going to be pursuing that and how Scripture establishes that for us and how we can establish that into our identities. Because if we can establish our identity and self-worth in eternity and in Jesus Christ, it will not shift and it cannot be stolen. It will endure regardless of circumstance. This identity, this self-worth is based on two things. Number one, who God is. This has to be where we start from because if we believe God exists, if we believe that Jesus is God and died for our sins, then our identities have to be established within his created universe in that he spoke all things into existence. And because he's God, because he's good, because he establishes what truth is, what is right, what is wrong, he is the one that says this is purpose and this is folly. This is what brings satisfaction and joy and peace and love and happiness. This is what leads to death and emptiness and sorrow. If we believe that, then we can understand that our identity and who we are is established by Him and not by us. It's by what He says and what He has done Not by what we think, what we have done, or what other people say about us. That's how we find value and worth and identity that's anchored in eternity, that cannot shift or change, cannot be stolen, and will endure. 
because it's established by God and not by us and not by what we do. A few verses that we could look into this uh, in First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians, chapter five. Rather, it says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come." In other words, as we come to salvation, we are fundamentally and eternally spiritually changed, and we're no longer citizens of this world. That's what God says. Now, we struggle to live out of that. But again, this whole series is going to be looking at ways why we struggle to live out of that. But it must be on the foundation of this is what he says he's done for us. Galatians chapter 2. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship. Um, also can mean masterpiece in here. Created by Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This is what we must start with. This is what he says. This is what we have to hold to, what we have to pray for, what we have to acknowledge, saying, God, this is what you say. I believe it is true. I struggle to live that out practically in my life. But I believe that this is true, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in me to live according to this truth. That's all we're asking. That's all we're saying as a church is this is what we need to do. Is just acknowledge that truth has been established by God. We struggle to live with it. And the first step to that is just acknowledging that to him. God, this is true. Here's where I don't live that way. Help me to live that way. Right? There is no condemnation. There is no failure in this. It's just asking God, help my identity to be in you. Help my self-worth to be in what you say that I am. Help me to live this out in every moment of my life. Help me to root out the things that don't belong there. And as I mentioned earlier, this series is going to look at a number of common blocks and traps to that. How we can recognize what those things are, how Scripture reveals truth in those areas, and then how we can start walking out in that as we go. Um, as we get into this series, I actually have a homework assignment. I don't know if I've ever done this before in the history uh, of our church plant, but I have a homework assignment for you. And we're not going to necessarily share, unless you want to share uh, with others either online or over coffee or whatever it is. Um, but the first thing is, uh, what are the first five priorities in your life? Actual. Like, like the way it actually lives out. Like, like if you take stock of the way that you spend time, the way that you spend money, the way that you live and interact with other people, what does that reveal are the top five priorities in your life? Then after you do that through prayer and Holy Spirit, like reveal what these things are in me and, and write those things down, the second thing would be let's go to the Sunday school answers. Let's then go into the Okay, what should, what, what do I want my five priorities to be? What, what do I know that God is saying my five priorities ought to be in my life, right? 
And then when you have those two lists down, it's going to give you something to pray for. You're going to recognize some areas. Again, no condemnation in that. First thing that you're going to pray is, God, thank you. There's no condemnation in this. Thank you that the Holy Spirit's revealed this to me. God, how can I get my life to line more with this? And it's just praying through that. The series is going to help us to go through that, but each individual person has different things within your identity, different things that you're practically living out that are different from every other person, and the series can't cover all of it. But the whole point of it as a church It's not just about Sunday morning here. All of the answers are not going to be given in a 40-minute sermon as I sit up here and talk and you sit there and listen. This is going to be done by you submitting to the Holy Spirit, asking Him to reveal things, thanking Him again, there's no condemnation, and then asking for wisdom and sharing this with one another so that you can walk alongside each other, encouraging one another how to live more in the way that Christ is calling you to live. We can do this together. We can encourage one another. And in this, we anchor identity more in who he says that we are instead of how we feel that we are or how we may have just slipped into living unintentionally. And through intentionality, we can get back to focusing on Christ. It gives us areas to pray for. It gives us areas to heal from. It gives us areas for the Holy Spirit to work in. Um, as we submit to this. If, uh, if you do that, um, it may not be easy, especially if you're really honest. Um, but I can promise you that it will be good if you submit to the work of the Holy Spirit. If you allow that conviction to sit, if you battle against any sense of condemnation, it's even going to be more beneficial if you do share it with somebody else and ask them to to help you walk through that. If you do that, your identity is going to start getting anchored more and more in who God says that you are instead of what you've allowed to happen. Um, And again, this series is meant to take us through some anchor points, but you're going to get the most benefit out of this if we do the work amongst each other as a church. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Uh, Lord, we thank you um, for this parable with the Father and the sons, how it reveals um, identity that we build um, can play out in so many different ways. But it also reveals that our identity is not in what we think it is. It's, it's not in how we prioritize our lives, but it's rather simply established by who you say that we are. And we have a Bible full of verses that speak to that. Lord, I pray uh, that those words would be as honey to our lips. That it would be alive and active in our lives. That it would transform us as we submit to your work. Pray that your Holy Spirit would guard us from condemnation as we examine our lives. But also we would take this opportunity to be iron that sharpens iron. And encouraging one another to pursue you more and to live more fully and of more worth and value because it's anchored in who you say that we are. Lord, we'd submit as a church to your work in whatever shape that takes and however we go forward. In Jesus' name, amen.